0: Good morning. Welcome. Mark is going to be speaking today from Exodus 33. And so I'll read verses 12 to 19. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy.
1: Good morning. This week we're going to take a look at Exodus 33. Um, we're coming to the the end of our summer. It's been a fun summer for my kids, at least. Uh, it all began with with Jaywalker's Jamboree. Jaywalkers was that kind of iconic moment in my kids' mind. When they think of a fun Camaro summer, they think of Jaywalkers, uh, the rides. I love mini donuts and lemonade. They love the rides. They. Uh, they could go on those rides over and over again. Uh, and, th- and truly, there is something fascinating about uh, those rides, you kind of putting your body under different types of gravitational stresses. Uh, the, the one that goes up in the air and then, and then drops where you feel weightlessness, you feel zero gravity for a moment. Um, they don't have this one at Jaywalkers, but when I was going to the fair growing up in Lloydminster, they had the Gravitron, that's the one that spins around and Pins you up against the up against the wall. You get to experience enhanced gravity, like like what it's like to have three G, like a fighter pilot forced against your body. I think I understand um, what it is about the human desire to experience something of different gravitational forces placed in the bodies. Um, it's actually being somewhat of a kind of a billionaire's club bucket list item to travel to space. Jeff Bezos, uh, founder of Amazon, recently made headlines. Traveling to space. Uh, Even Captain Kirk, um, William Shatner, uh, the actor that played Captain Kirk on Star Trek, he traveled to space and he's in like his 70s, so it was touted as anybody can travel to space now and they get to experience weightlessness. Did you know on the moon, I weigh like 30 pounds? This is a fun thought for me. It's a bit misleading because my mass doesn't change. Um, Merely the force of gravity pulling me to the rock that my feet are planted on. The moon has less gravity than the Earth because it's less massive than the Earth. But if we were to travel to a rocky planet like the size of Jupiter, which is more massive than the Earth, I would weigh closer to 450 pounds. And thankfully, I don't weigh 450 pounds here. It is two and a half times the Earth's gravity. If I were to travel to a planet, a rocky planet, the, su- the mass of the sun, if it wasn't a star and it was an actual planet that we could set foot on, I would weigh 4,500 pounds, heavy. I would literally be crushed by the gravity of that planet. In today's text in Exodus, we find ourselves confronted with an idea like this. Moses is threatened to be crushed by the glory of Yahweh, which is is analogous to to gravity here. Yet, Moses insists on staying as close to God, as close to God as he can throughout it all. Let's pray as we get ready to tackle the text this morning. Father God, you are a good and gracious God, a God who has bent your knee and spoken to us. You spoke to us so that we can know you. You've given us your word. Um, And it's not an easy book. It takes some digesting. It takes some steady, It takes some understanding. To It's an ancient book written to an ancient culture. And I pray that you, this morning you would send your Holy Spirit to enlighten us, give us understanding as for what you are trying to teach us through your word this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. Amen. Uh, one of the dis- distinctives, one of the distinguishing marks of this church is uh, that we practice something called expository preaching. Expository preaching is uh, means we use the pulpit Sunday mornings to try to expose, expository expose, expose what God's word has to say for us. We believe God's word is, is profitable for us today. We, we rely on it for wisdom and sustenance. But as I said, God's word is an ancient book. So make, making sense of it today can take some work. I studied um, Charles Dickens and, and Shakespeare in in university, and those books are only three or 400 years old to 150 for Charles Dickens, and that was difficult enough to understand. We're talking literature that's 3,500 to, to 1,500 years old. It's difficult, and it's written in a different language. It's written to a different culture with different cultural norms and expectations. So so we preach expositorily. We, we, we try to un- dig deep and understand what God's Word has to say to us today, and it takes some work. Usually we preach through entire books of the Bible, because if we're going to put so much work into building context, we should, we should set up camp in a book. Um, we also don't want to make a, a habit of cherry-picking uh, passages based on our, our pet doctrines, what, what we like most about God. We want to understand God's word and who God is in his fullness. Uh, so preaching through entire books of the Bible helps us, tries to limit our, our um, pet doctrine preaching ability. If you are new here, this, this type of preaching may be new for you, um, or you may have come from a church that practiced this as well. It's trademark or, or key to churches since the Reformation is preaching God's word. Uh, we've been going through Genesis. We spent almost two years uh, traveling through Genesis. Um, Pastor Josh, before that, took us through 1 Corinthians. He's currently taking us through Ecclesiastes. Pastor Layton took us through 1 Peter. He's taking us through Mark, the Gospel of Mark, currently. Looking forward after Ecclesiastes, I've heard Josh mention Romans as a possible book that we're going to go through. So looking forward to that. But today, we are just looking at a snippet of God's Word. Just a little bit of Exodus. And unfortunately, we don't get the advantage of camping in this book, building context, understanding the entirety of it. We are going to try to take this little passage, and chew on it, digest it, and make sense of what God is teaching us today. To do that, I want to provide a bit of a flyover, a bit of a synopsis, summary, uh, getting up to it, where we are in Exodus. So Exodus, the book, um, Exodus means the way out. It comes from the Latin. It's the story of the nation of Israel traveling out of Egypt. We ended Genesis with Joseph's and his family, or actually Jacob, Israel, and his family setting up their home in Israel. And Exodus starts zooming forward 400 years. There's this 400-year gap. 400 years later, and the the nation of Israel has thrived. It's become um, not just a family, it's become a multitude now. It is a nation within a nation. It is a nation of Israel within Egypt. The promise given to Abraham in the book of Genesis is that God will make him into a mighty nation and will give him a land. That was was the promise, this uh, both dominion and dynasty, dominion of a, a land and a dynasty of people. And they've got a dynasty. They're a kingdom, or they're not a kingdom yet, sorry. They are a people, but they don't have the land. And so we find ourselves where they are prospering and the Egyptians the Egyptian pharaohs at this point kind of forget about Joseph and the, the major role he had in prospering the nation of Egypt. They forget about Joseph's role in that and they start to resent the Hebrews. They start to resent this nation of Israel. They start to oppress them. They enslave them, enforce them into labor. They um, even go further and and enforce infanticide. Be- beginnings of Exodus tell us the story of how uh, the pharaoh of Egypt, the king of Egypt, creates a law that requires all midwives who are giving birth to the Hebrew women, if they have a boy, if the baby boy, the Hebrew boy is a, uh, is a boy, he is to throw him in the Nile River. Um, ancient infanticide. As a means of population control and, 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 and subject, subjecting the people to further oppression. Uh, this is where we meet Moses. So Exodus means the way out. Moses, the name, actually means to draw out. And it's it's because when we first meet Moses, he's one of the first times we meet him, he's floating in a basket down a river, and an Egyptian princess finds him and draws him out. It it beckons to mind Moses' kind of origin story, where he came from. Moses is actually raised by this Egyptian princess, raised to be Egyptian royalty. With a bit of dramatic irony, Egyptian royalty plays a role in educating and equipping the very man that, will, God, that God will use to overthrow uh, the, the Pharaoh's dynasty, to overthrow the mighty nation, the chariots and the horses that, that ultimately get washed away in the crossing of the Red Sea, a symbolic cleansing, purifying God's act of justice in that role. Moses leads Israel out of Egypt by God's mighty hand. So the book of Exodus, which means the way out, is largely centered on this character of Moses, which means to draw out. This is a major theme for Exodus. Uh, We see it repeated over and over again. The people of Israel, they 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 are drawn out, they are rescued, they are through the waters and on the other side of the seas, and then very quickly. They get hungry because they're in a desert wilderness and they they long to return back to Egypt, to their oppression, to their slavery. And and God has to remind them over and over again why he has brought them here, why he's drawn them out and showing them that there is a way out of this into the land that God has promised. Uh, Where we are setting up is they are in the wilderness and they are at the base of Mount Sinai. It's a big section called the Sinai narrative. And we find out in this section, Moses is talking to Yahweh God. And you find out that Yahweh says that they are to be a nation of priests, Exodus nineteen three to 6. Priests uh, were the guys who talked to God and communed with them. It was supposed to be a whole nation of people doing that. I'll just even zoom to verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is telling the people of the nation of Israel when as he draws them out and and brings them out of out of Egypt that they were to be a nation of priests. But Israel fails quickly to grasp this concept, instead becoming a nation with priests. They were content to let Moses, an old man at this point, he's eighty years, eighty plus years old, um, they let him climb up and down this mountain. A bunch of times to commune with God at the top of the mountain. Um, He's described as going up, having a conversation with Yahweh, coming down, going up, coming down. This is where he receives the the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Um, Side note, next week with Adult Sunday School, we're going to start studying the Ten Commandments. We're doing Jen Wilkins' book, Ten Words to Live By, delighting in and doing what God commands. Um, so I'm excited for that. Back to Moses. He, he, he's up and down. He re- receives the Ten Commandments. He receives instruction. He receives what scholars call the covenant. That is, the agreement with God. They will be a nation and God will be their patron. He will look after them. He will, he will be with them if they do this and he does this. This is his promise. And, and this, is, this is the, the old covenant covenant. The Old Testament is a riff on that. Right after receiving the Ten Commandments, we see Israel kind of in the same vein of them grumbling the moment they were rescued out of Egypt. Well, right after receiving the Ten Commandments, they transgress. They they fail. They fall and worship that golden calf. Worship that. Create an image of Yahweh and then worship it. Worshiping other gods, a God who is truly not Yahweh for any image it could not contain. God. God follows this up in Exodus 33, 1 to 3 there, to go, to get what they wanted. It says, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God has given them an exodus. He's given them a way out. He's drawn them out to the wilderness and he's giving them a way out. They have their way out, their exodus, but the people of Israel right away recognize this for what it is. This is not a victory. This, this is not truly the promised land for the promised land without Yahweh going with them. It is no promised land at all. In a way similar to the analogy of our introduction here, how the gravity of a, of a massive planet would crush us. Yahweh is saying, if we continue on like this, this, this covenant relationship we've got going, if we continue on and you continue to do what you are doing, you will end up being Consumed, I will consume you. You are stiff-necked people. I, my holiness, will crush you. Moses and the people rightly respond by mourning, um, in Exodus thirty-three four to six. I won't, I won't read through the whole thing, but this is they, they mourned, and this is where we pick up today's passage, starting in thirty-three verse twelve. Moses said to the Lord. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. We we serve a God who has revealed himself to us. He's bent proverbial knee. He's condescended, come down to us, to our level, to reveal himself to us. No one sought him out. Yahweh God sought out Moses in the wilderness at the beginning of Exodus. We skimmed over, I I zoomed over that in my flyover, that scene where Moses is seeing the burning bush in the wilderness. Yahweh has drawn Moses to himself over and over. Moses hasn't sought out Yahweh. Moses' heart is so inclined that he knows or that he wants to know. He wants to know God's ways. But he wants to know God's ways so that he will find favor. It's interesting, though, his appeal is, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know you more so that I can find favor in your sight. Moses acknowledges that even the very desire to know God is contingent, is dependent upon finding favor in Yahweh's sight. This is this whole passage, this whole part of this passage, twelve to thirteen, reads like a prolonged plea to Yahweh. Don't send us into the promised land without your presence. This is that is not the promised land at all, but just a new Egypt, a new land where we may prosper for a bit like they did under Joseph in Egypt. But apart from you, Yahweh, we are nothing. This nation is yours. This people is your people. Carrying on in verse 14. And Yahweh says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Yahweh's response is quick. Okay, don't worry. I won't send you away from me. I will go with you. And I will give you rest. The, the older I get, the more I find the promise of rest to be so satisfying. <laughs> um, one of the most beautiful promises in all of Scripture. God promises it to those who know his ways and rely on his promises. David talks about this rest in Psalm 37. He says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not get upset because of one who is successful in his way, because of the person who carries out wicked schemes. And the the penultimate promise from Jesus, our Savior, when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden light. Pray that you hear that promise this morning, church. Rest for your souls. Amidst the chaos of the world, the lack of rest, the unrest this world affords you, you will find rest for your souls in Yahweh. God promises, I will give you rest, in verse 14. But it's almost like Moses doesn't hear this promise. This absolute from Yahweh. Concerned Moses was still going to be sent up to the land of Canaan, the promised land, without Yahweh, Moses continues his plea in in verse 15. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people? On the face of the earth. Moses almost rambling in sorrow and in this prolonged phase of mourning that Yahweh would even consider sending them away. He acknowledges that apart from Yahweh, the Hebrews are nothing special. Nothing distinguishes them from any other people on the face of the earth, apart from the fact that Yahweh has set his affections on them. Moses acknowledges this. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. The Bible, as I said, is ancient literature. It's written in an ancient language, in an ancient culture. In that culture, a name is significant. And for many people today, it is significant, truthfully, The meaning of our kids' names wasn't the reason we chose our kids' names. It was largely that we could have grandparents that could pronounce them. Um, (laughs) But in that culture, a name is significant. As I said, Moses, to draw out, refers to his origin a little bit. And it refers to his character. Moses has to be enticed to go on this, this rescue mission. God has to draw Moses out of the wilderness and back to Egypt. God draws out the nation of Israel with Moses as, as the leader there. God knows Moses' name. He says, I know you by name. He's saying, I know you, Moses. I know everything about you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. The darkness cannot hide you. I mentioned it earlier in, in, in Exodus um, 6, I believe it is, where God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. This is, this is kind of the... Um, they call it the theophany, the, the God's revealing himself to Moses initially here. Um, Moses is a bit of a shy guy. He doesn't really want to go do this rescue mission. He balks the the request of God that you are going to lead my people out from oppression. And Moses is like, whoa, I'm not that guy. I am not able to speak in public. I, I, I don't even know your name. And This is where we pick up. I want to read Exodus 3, 13. And this word is Yahweh. In your Bibles, it'd be capital L-O-R-D, all capitals. Every time that's written in your Bibles, that's the word Yahweh. Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. As I said earlier, Moses was educated in an Egyptian kingdom. He was educated in in the Egyptian pantheon, the the repertoire of Egyptian gods. He knew all about Osiris and Anubis and and Isis and Ra. He knew they all had names. They all had origin stories. Uh, Not everyone knew those origin stories, but the priests of Anubis and Isis and Osiris and Ra, they knew those origin stories. It was their job to know. And Moses is saying, if I'm going to represent you, Yahweh, If I'm going to represent you, God, he doesn't know Yahweh's name yet. What is your name? And then Moses, still thinking of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. He still thinks of the God like the gods of Egypt having an origin story. God knocks Moses on his butt and says, I am I am. It didn't capitalize it, but in your Bible, it'll be all capital. I am. That's my name. I am who I am. This is God's way of saying simply, I don't have an origin story. Not like the gods of Egypt. I don't have a beginning. I am self-existent. I transcend everyone and everything you could imagine. I am. I am the source of everything. And yet, in His infinite grace condescends. He comes down to our level in verse 15 and then says, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Right after saying, I am, I am transcendent above you, beyond you in every way. He says, you can call me Yahweh condescends to us. He speaks to us in a way we can know. He gives us his name. Yahweh sounds something like he is in Hebrew. It's meant to remind us of the name I am. It's the third person equivalent. I am, he is. That's God's not origin story for he has no origin, but the name beckons to mind something intrinsic to the nature of God. So we see in verse 17, God says he knows Moses' name, but God graciously also condescends to us to let us know his name. Verses 18 to 19, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you, my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Glory is not a concept we are super familiar with nowadays. It It's not something we think of like, I've got glory. You know, There, uh, there's this song that's played at my kids' hockey games often. It's called simply Glory. Glory. Um, some of the lyrics include, I'm a name you'll remember. I'm more than just a thrill. I'm going to be the greatest ever now. I'm a force that you will feel. And then the, the the chorus is, I do it for the glory, for the glory. And the song is obviously not Christian. It's, it's, it's speaking of an individual's desire to be made much of him or herself. It's, it's contrary to the Bible. The Bible says we exist to image God's glory, which means to reflect it, not absorb it. To to anybody who has been gifted with good gifts in whatever it is, hockey or music or whatever, is to glorify God with those gifts. Any glory we do receive for our God-given abilities, we need to deflect back to the giver of all good gifts. But the one lyric in that song that struck me is is this, that I'm a force you will feel. I'm a force you will feel. It's actually unintentionally teaching us uh, something biblical about the Hebrew concept of glory. The word for glory in, in Hebrew is kavod, and it's synonymous with, it's the same idea as another concept, which is weightiness or heaviness. Um, Paul riffs on this idea in the New Testament, writing in, in, in Greek, but he's a he's a Hebrew thinker. He's a he's a Hebrew scholar. He says, "For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comparison. Glory, as related to weightiness, heaviness, it, it's not completely out of sorts. Um, if we were to kind of think about it." Uh, we use these concepts a bit when we're talking about something's seriousness or graveness. I guess, you know, that's when we talk about something that's serious, we say that's heavy. That's heavy. Or um, or we would say, you know, more related to gravity, I guess, is it, I hope you understand the gravity of the situation here, the gravity, the pull, the, the heaviness of it. Uh, that's relating glory to situations or topics, but when we're relating glory as a as a personal adjective, as a personal descriptor of someone, uh, we could say that a certain person has a gravity about them, as a natural pull about them. We think of celebrities. If um, if Connor McDavid were to walk in the back for those hockey fans, you know, we would all be drawn to at least looking at him. You know, that's he's a great hockey player. There's there, he has a certain amount of glory or greatness in his abilities, which I pray you'd use to glorify God with. But there is a pull about him. When the princess that is freshly made over and comes down, like the Cinderella figure, comes down the stairs, everyone turns and looks to her. We are drawn to admire her in her glorious beauty. That that is kind of like God's glory here. Um, but it's more than that. It's not just an attention-grabbing pull. It's heavier. It, it, it is truly something altogether different and heavier than anything man's glory can hope to produce. His glory, Yahweh's glory, is truly, as the song says, a force that we will feel Again, akin to our introductory idea of gravity on, on Jupiter or that massive fictional planet the size of the sun, crushing us. This God's glory here threatens to crush Moses. The rest of the narrative, I didn't read it, but if you want to read it on your own time, verses 20 to 23 talk of the story of, of Yahweh hiding Moses in the rock and then covering him up with his hand, protecting him, graciously revealing a portion of his glory. Um, We're not going to get there this morning. though. we're going to camp in in verse 19. We're going to conclude there. This little gem, this little nougat. And we would, I think, miss if we were to fly over it too quickly. Moses asks God to show his glory to him, to reveal the heaviness of it. The thing that continues to draw Moses and the people of Israel out from Egypt and causes them to even refuse the offer to go up to the promised land without Yahweh, which is no promised land at all. Moses says, show me your glory. Show me this thing that is pulling me to you. In Exodus 33, 19, Yahweh says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Yahweh's glory, the thing that draws us to himself, that, that gravitational pull, the irresistible part of his nature is his goodness. I love that image it is his goodness i will make all my goodness pass before you it is indescribably good and apparently it's dangerously good. he already told moses that he knows his name now he's telling moses remember my name yahweh which reminds us i am he is He will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. He will show mercy. He will show favor to whomever he pleases. He cannot be controlled or manipulated. Moses pleads, if I have found favor with you, Yahweh's reply is simple. You have found favor with me, but not because you were favorable, but because I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. This Inability to twist God's arm to to earn his favor makes him a bit dangerous to us. We like God's situations that we can control, that we can have influence over. And he says he is good, but he is dangerously good. In C.S. Lewis' Chronicle of the Narnia, the the mystical, magical land of Narnia is kind of ruled by Aslan. Aslan's the lion, the great lion. And C.S. Lewis captures this idea of God being dangerously good in this analogy of Aslan. So I'm going to read that. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Yahweh will make his goodness pass before Moses. Yahweh's pull, the thing that draws us to him is his goodness but it is dangerously good he cannot be manipulated or bought his favor is not up for grabs to the highest bidder or the hardest worshiper or the most deserving of candidates he has shown his favor to those he calls his own plain and simple Yahweh's glory this gravitational pull. The bone-crushing reality of his goodness is at least partially this, that he will be gracious, to whom he will be gracious. Israel was told uh, they were to be a nation of priests. Instead, they chose to become a nation with priests. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here soon, and this is actually a um, this kind of beckons to mind the priestly role of, of meal, having the, the, the ritualistic meal here. And this is something that is also trademark. So expository preaching, preaching from the pulpit, was a trademark of Reformed churches. So was this, the idea that we, the priesthood of all believers, we are truly in Christ being bought for, paid for, being redeemed, bought at a price, we are this nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. In First Peter 2.9, sorry, Margo, I'm jumping out of order. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim, or that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We exist, church, to to glorify God, to make much of him, and then enjoy him, as the catechism says. And this is easier to do when we understand this natural goodness, this dangerously good aspect of God's character.